All righty. Um, there is now a no longer tentative syllabus on LATTE, um, so, which is to say it's probably not an accurate prognostication of the future, but it's at least what um, we're imagining the future looks like at this moment, even though we don't really imagine that it will be what we imagine. But that's cinema in its way. Um, all right, I think what we're going to do today is try and, well, so, no, the reason to tell you that there's a syllabus is to tell you that um, among the things mentioned on the syllabus are the two, um, what I simply called midterm and final. Um, I told you uh, um, in class that they would be quizzes with the value of tests. Um, I didn't actually put quiz on the um, syllabus because people would say quiz, oh, who cares? Um, because if you're the type of person who um, might make that mistake, then you would just be, that would be because you weren't paying attention and you would be redoubling your mistake when you actually sat down for what you thought would be a quiz who cares, whereas in fact what it's going to be is a quiz you better care a lot because it'll be 25% of your grade. Um, so, yeah. So the idea is uh, it won't take up the whole class. They'll be in class. It won't take up the whole class. Um, but the shortness of the quiz isn't, in, um, isn't a signal of it's unimportant. So you should do the reading. What does that mean? It means you should do the reading because it'll be um, in part about the reading and part about the movies um, and designed to make it possible for you to pump up your grade. So that'll be good. So it's a good thing. Also, if you've taken courses from me before, you know this, but if you haven't, you may still know it, which is that uh, I try to give you, we try to give you, right, don't we, the benefit of the doubt, and improvement helps. So the worst case scenario is that each um, item on the syllabus, that is the two tests, or the, two, the midterm, the final, and the two papers, worst case scenario is that they're treated equally. Um, that would mean either that your work deteriorated in the course of the semester, so your work got worse, but um, the fact that it was later in the semester didn't count against you, um, or that you did consistent work all the way through. Another way of putting this, see we're doing a little logic here, another way of putting this is to say if you do better later, um, that will help if you do, um, that will help you if you do worse later, then we'll treat um, them equally. So uh, the idea is do not despair if you start out not doing as well as you want to because you can do better later and to some extent um, improve on what you've done and that we'll take that into consideration. But if you spaz it towards the end of the semester, then we'll treat them equally. So um, study for the quizzes. I think the first one is March 4th and the last, I believe that's what I said. Are you checking, Jay? Yeah, so I think the first one then is March 4th. The last one is the last day of class. Uh, yeah? Will there ever be surprise quizzes? If there is, you'll be surprised. <laughs> and that would be the idea. Okay, you know that, you know the um, execution paradox? Um, Edward Snowden or someone like him um, is convicted of um, a crime and because he's so into information, the judge who's a sadist says, I'm not going to give you all the information you want. Um, you are going to be executed one day in the next week. Um, 
at noon on one day in the next week, but I'm not going to tell you what day it is. Um, and Snowden, or whoever, um, thinks about it for a moment, and being an expert on information theory says, oh, good, you can't execute me. And the judge says, why not? And Snowden says, because if you didn't execute me in the first six days, I would know it would be the seventh day, and then you'd be contradicting yourself because I'm not supposed to know the day that I'm being executed, so it can't be day seven. So there are only six days it could be, but it can't be day six because if I hadn't been executed by day five, I would know it was day six, and therefore it can't be day five, and it can't be day four, and it can't be day three, etc. So he can't be executed. To which the judge, also a logician, says, see, so you just don't know what day it is now, do you? Um, so who wins? So yeah, there'll be a surprise quiz sometime before the last day of class, and you will not know in advance what day it is. But will there be? <laughs> That's what you'll have to find out. Maybe that will be the question. Is this a quiz? This is not a pipe. Which gets us into platonic ideas of ontology. Is your hand up? Or? No, you're just doing the Stephen Colbert thing. OK. Um, he's really good at You know, he and John Stewart compete at that, right? You've noticed that, that they compete at throwing their pens up? Yeah. Um, and Stephen Colbert is actually better at pen throwing and catching than John Stewart is. Um, just, you know, don't say you learned nothing in this class. You at least learned that. Um, OK, so I think what we're going to do today is talk about the issues that we've um, not quite had enough time to talk about, um, but that are really, really crucial about the relations of images to ontology. Um, all the reading that we did for today from Plato to Blanchot, um, actually Bazin comes after Blanchot and Cavell comes after Bazin, so chronologically from Plato to Cavell um, in one way or another is about the relation of Ontology, which someone define. Anyone know the just the um, one-line dictionary definition of ontology? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, dis. The word logi, logos, comes from logos um, as in geology, narratology, whatever ology, um, is best translated as discourse about. Um, talk about might be a more literal translation. Um, reasoning about, thinking about, and then whatever it is that the first um, uh, root meaning of the word is. So um, ontology means discussion of or discourse about being. Um, being what being is. Um, the great question of ontology, which Martin Heidegger asks but is not the first to ask, is why is there something rather than nothing. Um, that is one way of asking a prime and primal um, question about philosophy. Why is there such a thing as existence? Why does existence itself exist? Um, various people will say those are not the same questions. So when you're talking about being, um, you may start finding yourself arguing about whether being and existence are the same thing, for example. Um, these are issues that can get you into many, many wildernesses, wildernessoi, wildernesses, um, um, of mirrors. And um, we'll explore only a couple of them and only um, not too deeply into the woods where many wolves um, lie in wait. 
um, but we will explore some of them. So this is a question, the question of being, that's the question of ontology. Now, the question of the existence of images, what it means for an image to exist, or do we say that images exist in the same way that the things that they are images of exist, um, that may seem a far more trivial question um, because in some obvious way, of course they exist. Um, anything that exists, exists. If someone holds up an image, they have an image. Um, if they um, hold up um, a turtle, they have a turtle. You can have the image of a turtle, you can have a turtle. Um, I almost alluded to Magritte um, a little while ago, but if you think of the Magritte, the famous Magritte painting, this is not a pipe. Do people know that painting? Um, and what it is an image of is a pipe. Um, so when he captions it, this is not a pipe, um, there's a sense in which that's a typical example of surrealist absurdity. Um, because, yeah, it is a pipe. What are you saying? Um, but there's another sense in which it's absolutely true. It's not a pipe. It's an image of a pipe. And um, the question, when you say this, are you pointing to something that is real, that exists, when you say this is not a pipe, um, are you pointing to something that exists, or is the word this itself an image of the thing that it is pointing to, a sign of that thing. Um, some philosophers will call it an index of that thing. Index um, literally means to point, hence the index finger is the pointing finger. So to say that this is not a pipe, in, you might even be able to say, um, might be able to put that sentence underneath a real pipe and have that sentence still be true because this, the word this, which is what's representing the pipe, the pronoun standing for the pipe in that sentence, this is not a pipe. Well, no, it isn't. It's a word. It's a pronoun. It's not a pipe. It might be an image or a sign of or an indicator of or a way to find your way to the pipe, but it is itself not a pipe. Now, if you find this is, this is really just um, sticking your little toe into the waters of ontology to, um, to um, have this discussion so far, um, but if you find this at all confusing, or if you find it at all bullshit, because confusing and bullshit are often two sides of the same coin, um, accusations of bullshit, accusations of confusion are two sides of the same coin, um, this, 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 goes all the way back to um, Socrates and Plato, and in fact to the pre-Socratic philosophers. How many people know who Parmenides is? Um, okay, how many people know who Socrates is? Socrates is the narrator of um, the Republic. Um, so the person who says I in um, this, the section on uh, the cave that we're going to go over in some detail today is Socrates. He's describing a discussion that he had. Um, so Socrates, just to give you, this really is film and philosophy, to give you a little bit of the background. 
here. Socrates is famous for various things, but one thing he's not famous for is his philosophical writing. Why is he not famous for his philosophical writing? Uh, yeah? Because we know about not only through Plato, but we only know about him through what people say he said. Um, Socrates did not write down his philosophical thinking. Um, he spoke to people. He occasionally had to give speeches, as when he was put on trial. Um, he told stories to people about other conversations that he'd had. And his students and friends and other people took notes of the things that he said. Um, we know that those notes are not perfectly accurate because there are some dialogues, most notably the Apology, in which, which survive in two versions, Plato's version and whose? Xenophon's. Um, and Xenophon's Socrates is a very, very different kettle of fish, but these are not, this is not a kettle and those are not fish. Um, and that's not a device for hunting lions in Scotland either. Um, Illusion. What's a device for hunting lions in Scotland? A MacGuffin. And it's not a MacGuffin. Good. Um, do you remember the Hitchcock story? One guy says, what's in the box? The other guy says, that's my MacGuffin. The first guy says, what's a MacGuffin? A device for hunting lions in Scotland. But there are no lions in Scotland, and that's not a MacGuffin. So there's the ontological question broached for you in its most Hitchcockian way. Um, all right, so Socrates did not write. Plato and Xenophon and others took notes on what he said. Xenophon's version is very, very different from Plato's version. The general thinking about Plato's dialogues is that you can divide them into three different periods. Um, the early dialogues, and early here means early in Plato's life as a writer, as a teacher, and as a philosopher, not early. So early chronologically as far as when they were written goes, not early as far as um, what they were written about. The early dialogues probably give us the closest and most accurate depiction of Socrates. Plato adored Socrates. He was a student. Um, he was much, much younger than Socrates. And he took notes on what Socrates said. And then um, he published those dialogues um, in which the ideas, the thinking, the incredibly powerful thinking of Socrates is preserved. Then Plato realized that he was coming to disagree with Socrates about various things. And in particular, he was coming to disagree with Socrates about ontology. So Socrates um, basically was a skeptic about the possibility of knowledge, um, the way knowledge and being connect up is if you know something, it has to be the case that in some way or other, you know it about being. To know something is to um, have access to truth. The Platonic definition of truth, this turns out not to work, but it only turned out not to work in about the last 50 years. Only then did people realize that this um, definition of truth didn't work. But the Platonic definition of truth, anyone know? 
Does it help if I tell you that Gettier was the person who showed that it was wrong? Okay, the platonic definition of truth is justify, uh, I mean, excuse me, of knowledge is, yeah, say it. Justified true belief. Justified true belief. Yeah, I, that, that's why you were getting it. It's not the platonic definition of truth, it's the platonic definition of knowledge. Justified true belief. That is, um, it has to be something that you believe, but you might believe it um, without being justified in believing it, or you might believe something that's false. So your belief has to be true. If it's not true, it can't be knowledge. And it has to be justified rather than simply what Plato has Socrates called right opinion. That is, you happen to be right. Um, you may even have reasons for thinking that, it, that what you're saying is true. Your belief may be true, but unless you have reasons for knowing that it's true, that is justification, um, then it's not knowledge. So the idea that knowledge is justified true belief, in a sense, allows us to coordinate various deep issues in philosophy, issues of knowing, with issues of truth, with issues of argument, that is justification, um, and all of those, the what you would know would be true of something that existed, and existence lends itself to being shown or proved true. So the idea of knowledge as justified true belief allows us to bring being into the picture and bring being into the picture in ways that um, hook up with philosophical argument, let's say logic or justification, and with philosophical knowledge and with psychology, what it is that you believe. So that idea of knowledge is justified true belief, um, that's an idea that um, Plato gets more and more interested in, and he gets more and more interested in what it is that you can know. And um, essentially what he thinks is if you can have an opinion about anything, it must be that those things that you have opinions about are things that in some way or another are meaningful, and if they're meaningful, there must be something in reality that gives them their meaning. That's putting it way too quickly, and I'm not going to expand on that now, um, but I'm just going to say that in the middle dialogues, we move from a probably truer depiction of Socrates as a skeptic, someone who said very famously of himself, the only thing that makes me wiser than others, because the Delphic Oracle told him he was the wisest of human beings, and he thought that was ridiculous because he thought he was completely ignorant. And then he said, okay, I finally understood what the Delphic Oracle meant, the only thing that I think may make me wiser than others is that I know I know nothing. And other people seem to think they know the truth, and yet it keeps turning out that they don't know the truth. Whereas, as far as I'm concerned, I really don't know the truth. I know I know nothing. Um, middle Plato has a Socrates who figures out the whole structure of the universe. Um, and he does it um, through doing Platonic philosophy rather than Socratic philosophy. Then late 
Plato um, starts making Socrates a secondary figure. And he will often have other philosophers come in to say what it is that late Plato thinks. And what it is that late Plato thinks um, becomes a much more vigorous challenge to the kinds of things that Plato has had has put into Socrates' mouth in his middle dialogues. So Plato, in Platonic dialogues, Socrates, the real Socrates, gradually gives way to Plato's very different kind of thinking. The reason I mention this is because one of the latest dialogues of Plato is a dialogue called the Parmenides. Parmenides was about 50 years older than Socrates. Um, if you say Socrates is about 50 years older than Plato, I don't remember exactly, but I think that's right. Um, we're now talking about someone who was, who was born about 100 years before Plato was. And Plato writes a dialogue, one of the most amazing dialogues in the whole canon. Um, Plato writes a dialogue in which the very young Socrates meets the very old Parmenides, and they have an argument about ontology. They have an argument about being. Um, and the two figures whom Socrates argues against are Parmenides and his student Zeno. Who's Zeno? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, paradoxes of uh, movement and such. Yeah. Um, Zeno is very famous for the paradoxes of motion. So Zeno's paradoxes, does that ring a bell for people? Zeno shows you can't ring a bell. <laughs> Um, you may try to ring a bell, but to strike the bell, you have to get halfway to the bell before you can strike it and before you can do that. Okay, for me, so the paradox of the arrow never hitting the target, that's not familiar to people. So you should know this. You'll learn two things in this class. Um, for me, the best version of Zeno's paradoxes and one that actually brings move, um, ideas of um, movies in and time slices is the Achilles and the tortoise paradox. Uh, does that strike a tortoise shell for anyone? Can you explain it? Um, don't feel on the spot. If you don't want to, that's okay. Well, it's the idea that, as you said, you have to cover half the, half the bit. In order to get from point A to B, you have to get to a point in between A right. and B. So it's the same idea, although it's not done exactly the same way. But yeah, so it's Olympics time. Imagine that it's the speed skating event. And this is not quite how Zeno did it. Uh, but imagine it's the speed skating event, and the tortoise and Achilles are um, having a race. And the tortoise is a very slow skater because it's a tortoise. Um, and Achilles is a very fast skater because this is swift-footed Achilles. So Achilles, being a nice guy, a nice skater, gives the tortoise um, a little bit of an advantage. It's um, a course, and well, I don't know, 100 meters, 1,000 meters, whatever, but Achilles gives the tortoise a one meter advantage. So here's Achilles. Anyone draw? OK, here's Achilles. <laughs> that doesn't work either. See, he's smiling, and he looks like Peppermint Patty, but he's really Achilles. And he is actually, I should draw him in profile because he's going that way. He's on his skates. Those are skates, you can tell, right? These are not skates. But they are skates, in quotation marks. So he's heading this way. And here's a little tortoise with a one meter advantage. 
Also on not skates? <coughs> Tortoise have four legs, yeah. Of course they <laughs> And the um, starting gun goes off. And after a certain amount, so the starting gun goes off at time t0. That just means it's zero seconds have elapsed, zero instants have elapsed. And at some time in the future, t1, the tortoise will have moved here, just a little ways. And Achilles will have gotten to where the tortoise began. So Achilles will have pulled up to where the tortoise was when the race started. Then, at time t2, the next time we check in, the tortoise was here. Achilles will get to where the tortoise was, namely here. But the tortoise, in the meantime, will have gotten to here. <coughs> then at time t3, Achilles will get to where the tortoise was. But every time Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise <coughs> won't be there anymore because the tortoise is skating slowly, but the tortoise is skating. So the tortoise won't be there anymore, and Achilles will still be behind the tortoise. And therefore, Achilles can never catch up to the tortoise, much less pass the tortoise and win the race. So this is one of Zeno's paradoxes. For me, it was the one that I found most striking. Um, he basically gives the same paradox in four different ways. Um, but that's the one that was most striking for me. Because, of course, we've seen people catch up to and pass tortoises. But if we try to think about it, we don't see how it can happen. That is, logic seems to indicate that every time Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise will have gone ahead a little bit, and so we don't see how Achilles can pass the tortoise. Now, you can say, well, take a movie of it, and then we can actually find the moment when Achilles is passing the tortoise. But the truth is, the odds that you'll find the moment when Achilles and the tortoise are neck and neck are actually zero. You will have one frame with Achilles behind the tortoise and the next frame with Achilles ahead of the tortoise, but you will never find a frame, that is the odds are infinitesimal, that you will find a frame where they are exactly neck and neck. So Achilles, so the movie won't tell you how Achilles can pass the tortoise. The movie will only confirm what you already know, that Achilles was behind the tortoise and then he was ahead of the tortoise. But passing the tortoise, that's the question. How does he do it if every time he gets to where the tortoise was, the tortoise has gone on a little bit? Um, if you do very, very high speed movie with instead of 24 frames per second, 2,400 frames per second, let's say, um, you'll see them get very, very close to each other indeed. But again, the odds are infinitesimal that you'll ever see them at exactly the same place. And by infinitesimal, I mean the odds are infinite to one that you will never see them at exactly the same place. So Zeno offered this paradox in defense of his teacher Parmenides. Parmenides was arguing, and what Zeno thought he showed through this paradox was that there is no such thing as motion, that what when we see motion, like, God, I do worse than anyone. Um, there, that was not bad, Colbert-like. 
um, that when we see motion, what we're seeing is an illusion. That there is no motion, that motion is pure illusion, that um, being makes no sense if there is room in it for motion because it will be self-contradictory as the Achilles and the tortoise um, paradox shows and that therefore motion is an illusion, pure illusion and um, there is no motion in the universe. So Socrates and Zeno have a debate about this and Socrates can't convince Zeno that he's wrong, and Zeno can't quite convince Socrates that he's wrong, and then Parmenides steps in. So you have the very old Parmenides now arguing with the very young Socrates, and, the, and Plato, who's writing this 100 years later and making it up, that is, <coughs> this dialogue, this argument never occurred, but Plato, who uh, invents it now 100 years later, has Parmenides completely wipe the floor with Socrates. It's the dialogue, maybe the, the only dialogue, where it's absolutely clear that Socrates loses. In almost all Platonic dialogues, if Socrates gets into an argument, he wins the argument. Um, he always does, except at the end of his life, Plato writes this dialogue set at the beginning of Socrates' life in which Socrates loses. And what they are arguing about is the nature of being. And the kinds of things they're saying are things about the question of the relation of an image of the thing to the thing itself. Does the image have its own existence, or does it derive its existence from the thing that it's an image of? If it has its own existence, what's its relation to the thing that it's an image of, if it derives its existence from the thing that it's an image of, what kind of existence does it have if it has a derived existence? Either way that you try to argue it, Parmenides is going to find a contradiction in what it is that you're saying. Thinking about being is a really, really hard thing to do. It's partly a hard thing to do because it's not clear what the relation of being to thinking is. It's not at all clear how we can think about being, why being would disclose itself to thought. So in the 20th century, and um, this is, uh, Cavell mentions this at the beginning of his essay, What Becomes of Things on Film, which if you think about what that question means, part of what his essay is, is um, an interpretation of the meaning of that question. What becomes of things on film um, is partly what happens to the things once they're filmed. That could be one way of um, understanding the question that he's asking. Um, another way of asking it is to say, when you have a thing in a film. That is, if someone says, oh my god, he's got a gun, it won't work, except maybe in, um, um, well, let's allude to Philip Seymour Hoffman in Synecdoche, New York. Um, it won't work for um, someone to give the Charlie Kaufman answer, that's not a gun, it's only the image of a gun because we're in a film. Um, you can't say this is not a gun. Um, or maybe you can. Um, when a thing becomes a thing on film, 
is it still the thing or is it something else? The image of the thing, the relic of the thing, the trace of the thing, um, what the thing um, had it as its goal to be. Those are various ways of understanding Cavell's question, what becomes of things on film. So the first thing, I'm, I, what I want us to do in a minute is to look at um, the parable of the cave, and, and we'll say as much as we can about it today. Um, but the first thing that I want to point you to is just the first page, or the first two pages of Cavell's essay. Um, Cavell begins by quoting um, someone who has quoted him in juxtaposition to Heidegger. Um, so <coughs> he's quoted as saying something that he's considering, namely that, this is page 249, if you have the Cavell, um, the cinematic image accentuates the conspicuousness, obtrusiveness, and obstinacy of things. Um, and Cavell is certainly not sure that he wants to say that, that what becomes of things on film is that they become more conspicuous, more obtrusive, and more obstinate. But it's at least something, it's an issue <coughs> for him, whether that's true or not. And then he talks about the background of that idea. The background of what I said in the course of giving you some examples of how thinking about films and thinking about philosophy have drawn upon one another in my work was this. So here's the background. Early in being and time, Heidegger characterizes the specific way in which the phenomenon occurs in his terms of the worldhood of the world announcing itself. So how is it, Heidegger asks, that the worldhood of the world announces itself? Um, a typical Heideggerian question, um, if you think that's opaque, you ain't seen nothing yet in your reading of Heidegger. Um, but that's the question that he's asking. How does the worldhood of the world announce itself? Um, it is a phenomenon in which a particular mode of sight or awareness is brought into play. So just to give a very quick exposition of what the worldhood of the world would mean, Heidegger's idea, um, and not only his idea, but this is what he focuses on with um, very great force, is that our relation to the world is most of the time um, one in which we're not thinking about it as a world. Um, if someone asks you, and I'm sure all of you have had this confusion as well about even the definition of the word world, um, sometimes the world and the planet Earth are, um, are allied to each other. That is, if you say, I've gone around the world in 80 days, you mean around the planet in 80 days. That's what Jules Verne meant by world. Um, in that title, or at least as English translator, in French it's monde. Um, but the world can also mean other planets, that is there are other worlds that we can explore, or the world can mean 
the universe, it's often used um, to mean the universe itself, not the cosmological universe. That is, we wouldn't say, for example, that um, Sirius is the closest planet in, or, or that Alpha Centauri is the closest planet in the world to us. Um, but what we would say is the world represents all possible um, space or place in which we exist. The world is where we are. Wittgenstein, some of you will know, the first sentence of his Tractatus, his first and um, the only book he ever published in his lifetime, gives a definition of the world. The world is all that is the case. That's his definition of the world. All that is the case. And among the things that are the case is that Saturn has rings. So that's part of the world. Um, so that idea of the world is basically everything. Um, there are all sorts of ideas of the world. Heidegger means it in something like the everything idea, um, not the planet. And more explicitly, not even the universe because not an object. So the crucial way, if you ever get deeply into Heidegger, the crucial thing to understand is that the word world does not designate an object. A way of putting it is to say there is no this that is a world. This is not a world, ever. This is not a world. It may be a pipe, it's not a world. The world is rather where we are, where we live, what is there for us, what we think about, what we deal with, what we interact with, what we care about, and for Heidegger that's the most important word, what we care about, um, what comes to us when we become aware of our own existence. Those are all ways of trying to approximate what Heidegger means by the world. So most of the time, what we're doing is um, looking at our watches, sitting in classes, getting some food, um, being disgusted by the bad weather, slipping on ice, <laughs> dealing with things moment to moment um, and day to day. And what we're doing is we're dealing with objects. And the way we deal with objects on the whole is we deal with them um, in the ways that we can, with the tools that we have for dealing with them. And most of our experience as human beings is an experience of this and that, doing this and then doing that, having to take an exam, having to write a paper, finding out that the hard drive crashed, um, all sorts of things that we're doing all the time, flipping our pens and having them fall right into our hands, all sorts of things that we're doing all the time. But sometimes, important times for Heidegger, we become aware of the world as a world. Here we are. How did that happen? Here the world is. What is this world that is here? And at that point, we start becoming aware of the worldhood of the world. That is a sort of beginning of philosophical thinking. That is to say, not that philosophical thinking um, starts there and then goes elsewhere, 
but it's when you think of the worldhood of the world that you start asking yourself what are what have come to be called after Heidegger <coughs> existential ideas, existential questions, questions about how is it that we exist. The same questions if you've seen Blade Runner, that um, Decker, how many people have seen it? Um, okay, the Decker ascribes to Roy, the replicant, at the very end of the movie. He was asking himself the same questions we all ask ourselves, and those questions can boil down to what is this world? How am I in a world? How can there be how can there be a world? What is the worldhood of the world? So Heidegger says that um, one place that the worldhood of the world can become an issue for us is, and this is what Cavell is quoting, is when there's a disruption of the matters of course running among our tools and the occupations they extend and the environment which supports these, these um, sorry, and the environment which supports these occupations. It is upon the disruption of such matters of excuse me, of such matters of course, of a tool, say, by its breaking, or of someone's occupation, say, because of an injury, or of some absence of material, that the mode of sight then brought forth discovers objects in what Heidegger notes as their conspicuousness, their obtrusiveness, and their obstinacy. So when things go wrong, we stop using objects without thinking about them and instead we see them. We see that they are part of a world. We see that the world is disclosing itself to us in these objects which are not there for us to use in a distracted and unconscious and autonomous fashion, which is mainly what we do, but we become aware of them and of the world in which they are and of the world in which we are. Now Cavell wants to relate this to film as something that film causes us to do. It may not be what a filmmaker wants us to do, but then a filmmaker has to find ways <coughs> to make objects less <coughs> conspicuous again, to make things on film things that are as inconspicuous as things in our everyday environment. Um, one way to do this, I kind of hesitate to um, ask you to notice this, but I'm going to anyhow, is um, next time you're driving, notice the fact that your hands are on the steering wheel as you're driving. Um, most of the time what happens when you're driving, and it's actually kind of important, um, is that you are only looking at the road and the traffic and whatever it is that you need to be doing. Maybe you're texting, but you shouldn't be. Um, but what you're not looking at are the tools and instruments that allow you to do that. So even though um, in, the peripheral, in your peripheral vision, your hands are there, the steering wheel is there, and so on, um, they're not in your consciousness. Um, if you think about them, of course they're there and they were always there. Um, 
but when you're driving and just remember yourself driving, you're not going to remember your hands on the wheel. Um, all you're going to remember is where you were going. Um, so it's all that the inconspicuousness of objects in the world that um, don't disclose its worldhood and therefore for Heidegger don't bring up the question of being itself. That question, what is being? But under certain conditions, when tools break, he says, when there are disruptions, when there's an injury, when there's some absence of material, the worldhood of the world starts becoming an issue for us. And the question, what is a world? Why is there a world? What is our relation to the world? How did we get thrown into this world um, becomes an issue for us. Um, now, obviously, what this has to do with rear window is that it's just that kind of injury, just that kind of disruption, just that kind of um, no longer having an everyday or an ordinary or um, an autonomous or unthinking relationship to the world that happens to Jeffries. Um, he's injured, he can't move, he has tools, but he has to use the tools in ways differently from the way tools are usually used. And all of this is bringing up for him questions which are at least on the verge, for him, on the verge of existential questions. Um, for us watching the movie and thinking about the movie theoretically, um, questions about the nature, um, now to go to Bazin and his way of thinking about these things, the nature of space itself. So one thing that Bazin says, which I think is really, really crucial in talking about the difference between theater and film, is to say, and just talking about that great distinction now between theater and film, is to say that the thing about theater is what you see on stage is essentially the only space there is in the theatrical world. You are seeing, you're watching people on stage, and you are looking into the heart of the story or the heart of the placement of the story. It may be that there are multiple such placements um, if you go from scene to scene, but you're looking into the heart of the story, and you are looking into a space without an outside. You don't think about what is on the other side of the room that something is ha that that um, you're watching scenes occur in in theater. It's not that people can't go places. It's not that they can't say, "Okay, I'm going to go um, to England because you're ordering me to, um, Uncle," um, and let's see what happens. And then they return. Here I'm alluding, of course, to Hamlet. Um, but it's not that the way we see the space on stage makes us think that England is offstage. There is no offstage for us. There's absence, 
but that absence becomes, you could say, verbal. What it means for Hamlet to be absent is we can say to ourselves that he's been sent to England. But what it doesn't mean is that he is somewhere else and that other place is England. So our intuition of theatrical space is an intuition of a space without an outside. Now that's not weird in any way. It may sound weird to put it that way, um, but I think um, an easy way to see its truth is just to think about the difference between being inside and outside of a house. Um, and often, even in houses you know really, really well, how hard it is for you to picture um, what the outside of any room on the inside is, which wall it's on. That is, think of, think of a room you know well, um, but, but, you're not, but don't think about what you can see outside of its windows and think about which side of the house that window is on. And you have to do a lot of work to do it. Um, it's not intuitively obvious. We don't think of houses um, the way architects do unless we're architects. Um, so, and part of what architecture is about is getting you into a house, into a space, without your thinking any more about the layout of that space with respect to the outside. That's what theatrical spaces are like as well. They are spaces with an inside, but no outside, at least in our intuition of those spaces. Filmed spaces, that's absolutely not true about. And that's one of the things that Bazin is talking about. And one way that you can see it in Rear Window is how important it is when we're watching that movie to try and think about what we can barely see or what's <coughs> going on at the end of the alley on the left. Um, certainly the second time you're watching Rear Window, you're going to be looking, spending a lot of time looking down that alley and seeing what you can see on the street outside. Do people remember some of the stuff on the street? Anyone? I mentioned the uh, water, um, the... Uh, um, water truck spraying the street with the kids um, getting wet behind it at the beginning of the movie. Anyone remember other things? Yeah. Uh, the lady who's helping Jeffrey's out goes to check the license plate of the truck. Right, okay, good. Um, so she goes out to check the license plate of the truck. What else? Uh, milkman. Right, the milkman at the very beginning comes in um, from the street, yeah. You can see that man that Jeffrey's is watching walk back and forth all the time. Yeah, so that's where Thorwald makes his exits and entrances and um, disappears when Jeffries falls asleep. Yeah? Okay, yeah, the little dog. Um, but what about, yeah? The cops arriving. The cops arriving. So those are all, or those are mainly, um, you're thinking mainly of um, characters or things that have entrances and exits down that corridor. Um, but what will happen the next time you watch the movie, um, and it's quite brilliant on Hitchcock's part to how he does this, is it's worth just figuring out the street life that's occurring on the basis of this tiny little sliver. <coughs> not the street life that matters to the movie, not the characters that are coming in and out, but the street life that doesn't enter into the rear alleyway. Hitchcock makes sure to keep it busy because that gives it an effect of reality. 
um, he, may, he gives you the experience that you have in real life of only getting a sliver of something. You know, you can see it's still light outside and there are no leaves on the trees. Only getting, you, getting a sliver of something, but knowing that there's a lot more. Um, at the very beginning, for example, um, this was in the part, but I didn't point out to you that we looked at last time. Um, there's a guy having breakfast in the little diner across the street, um, and he gets his coffee poured, and he reads his newspaper, um, and then he folds up his newspaper and pays and leaves. And you can see that if that's all you're focusing on. It would be like watching the clock, but more so because you'd be ignoring everything else and only watching this about two degrees of the surface of the screen or about 2% of the surface of the screen. Um, you can watch this little vignette occurring that is completely meaningless to the movie, but it is occurring because it's occurring in a city and because it's morning. And so the space of that city expands vastly beyond simply the space that Jeffries can see. Another way to put this is to say, um, just for technical reasons, you can't do this in the theater um, because, or you can only a little bit, but in the theater, you have something like at least 120 degrees, at least 120 degrees of different sight lines. That is, you have people sitting in um, the left side of the theater, people sitting in the right side of the theater, people sitting in the center. You have balcony seats, you have orchestra seats, you have loge seats. You know, if you go to the Metropolitan Opera, you'll have raking angles at close to um, parallel. This, you'll, your, your natural line of sight will be close to paralleling the stage um, if you're sitting close to the stage in a balcony, um, and you'll be have, have a highly raked angle on the stage. All those different angles mean that what a thea theatrical show has to present has to be the same more or less, although from different angles from all the audience members. But in a movie, everyone sees the same thing. You may see it from a slightly different angle, um, and if you're sitting way too close or way too far to the right, it may be a little bit hard to figure out what's happening. Um, you may get a strongly what they call anamorphic view. Um, do people know what anamorphosis is? No, this used to be mother's milk to people in the heyday of French theory. Um, Mad Magazine? So there used to be this thing in Mad Magazine, for all I know there still is, um, which were um, double pictures. And the idea is, do you know what I'm talking about? How do they work? Uh, like the yeah, so if you folded the page over, you know, it's like making George Washington into a mushroom with your dollar bill. You know how to do that? A uh, third thing you can learn in this class. I leave this as an exercise for you. It's not hard to do. Um, if you fold over pages of, of Mad Magazine or of certain pictures, what happens is things come together that were apart, and now you see a different image. Um, a more sophisticated way of doing that that Mad used to do also is if you just hold a page on an angle, what will happen is you'll get extreme foreshortening of certain things, and you'll see a different image from if you look at it straight on. 
um, and that's called an anamorphic representation. Um, and what happens is if you look at very extreme <laughs> angles, you will see different things on a flat surface, or you can see different things on a flat surface. But generally speaking, in a movie theater, no matter what angle you're looking at the screen at from, um, you will see pretty much what everyone else sees. Um, sometimes it'll take your brain a little while to get used to it. Do you guys have that experience of, oh no, there are only front seats left? Um, that's going to be terrible, but okay, we have to do it. And then for the first five minutes, it feels like a huge mistake. And then after about five minutes, it's okay. You've gotten used to it. Yeah, so your brain can actually, um, interestingly, this is not something um, to, to take as a matter of course. It's an interesting, are you doing the mushroom? Yeah. You want me to do it? Yeah, or did, yeah, yeah. You figured it out? No, I want to. <laughs> All right, I'm after sure class. This is right, but. No, it's. it's no, oh, that's cool. Maybe that's what they meant. But the way we learn to do it, when I took this course, oh, genius, so much better. There, check it out. Okay. Wow. Wow. All right. Um, is that your brain actually compensates for the angle that it looks at flat surfaces from. Um, your brain is its own Photoshop. And um, so that fact means that a thing you don't do in movies, although little kids will, is you don't crane your neck. That is, you won't see any more about what's going down at the end of that alley if you go like this. Um, you won't be able to see any more than if you sit perfectly still. No angle will give you more information about what's happening at the other end of the alley. Um, because angles will give you more information in theater, um, in real space, in three-dimensional space, because angles will give you more information in three-dimensional space. They won't, by the way, in 3D movies, um, but they will give you more information in real space. Because that's true, theatrical productions have to make relatively sure that the same information is available no matter what angle you're looking at. So if, um, you know, it turns out to think, um, um, I'm thinking of a play that uh, I saw about 10 years ago. It turns out that if the main character has, uh, actually there's a Sam Shepard play where the main character pokes out his eyes. That goes all the way back to Oedipus. But in the Sam Shepard play, we don't realize the main character has poked out his eyes until he turns around and his eyes are streaming blood. Um, that won't work if some people in the audience can see that he's poked out his eyes because they have a good angle on him. He has to turn all the way back so that no one can see him so that everyone in the audience gets shocked in the same way at the same moment. It won't work if some of us can see it and others can't. Same with magicians' tricks. Magicians um, have to set up their tricks so no matter what angle you're looking at them from, um, you won't see what the, what the slate of hand is. Um, it won't do if you're a magician. If some people can see that you have a cigarette hidden behind your back while you're standing like this, um, while others can't, and they go, ooh, and the people here go, What's up with that? Um, so theatrical productions have to control space 
in a way that film doesn't because the camera has already done that. The camera gives you a single angle that, that everyone who sees the picture that the camera has taken gets the same angle no matter what angle they take on that picture. Um, it's the same interesting, very mildly paradoxical um, uh, fact as the fact that a photograph of a mirror doesn't reflect. That is, if you take a picture of a mirror, you can't use the picture of a mirror as a mirror. If you take an angled shot of something, you can't use that shot as a way of trying to um, look at it from a different angle. Um, so what that means, um, what Bazin is saying about this, is that our intuition of space in a theater, he doesn't quite put it this way, but our intuition in the space in a theater is like an intuition of our own rooms. That is, this is where we are. And what's exterior to this, in some very deep sense, doesn't exist. It's like being home. Um, our intuition of space in a movie is that space extends forever, that there's no limit, that the limit of the screen is not the limit of the, of the world in which the movie is taking place. So th that distinction is an important one and one that ultimately goes all the way back to the allegory of the cave in Plato. Um, so before we get to that, and we're about to start talking about that, but before we get to that, um, I just want to draw your attention to a moment in the Blanchot essay um, where Blanchot is bringing up the same issues, but in a somewhat different way. So this is um, on, it says page 258, right in the middle. Um, and this is where he's talking about um, resemblance versus the object. Um, so the page begins... Um, the top of the page are the words, let us look again at this splendid being from which beauty streams. Um, and then go to the third paragraph on that page. Um, by analogy, we might also recall that a tool, when damaged, <coughs> becomes its image. And sometimes an aesthetic object like those outmoded objects, <coughs> fragmented, unusable, almost incomprehensible, perverse, which André Breton loved. So André Breton, do people know who he is? Who? Um, he was a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, popularized the decisive moment. Mm -hmm. uh, street photographer. No, actually, you're thinking of someone else. He did do some photographer, photography, but what he mainly was was the um, great um, spokesperson for surrealism, um, uh, for yes. French surrealism. Yeah. yeah. And um, he wrote uh, surrealist novels. Nadja is his famous surrealist novel, quite an amazing novel, and a lot of surrealist manifestos. So um, if you think surrealism equals Dolly or Magritte, they do in painting, but Bertrand is the great writer of surrealism. He was a frenemy, that is a friend, but an antagonist 
of Blanchot and of Camus as well. Um, but they all uh, belong to the same milieu. So um, Breton um, loves those outmoded objects because they become their own images. Um, just like, says Blanchot, a tool, when it is damaged, it becomes its image. In this case, the tool no longer disappearing into its use appears. This appearance of the object is that of resemblance and reflection. The objects double, if you will. The category of art <coughs> is linked to this possibility for objects to appear, to surrender, that is, to the pure and simple resemblance behind which there is nothing but being. Only that which is abandoned to the image appears, and everything that appears is, in this sense, imaginary. Um, so what he's doing here is alluding to Heidegger. Heidegger was his teacher, and um, a whole lot of Blanchot's amazing um, life as a writer and thinker uh, was devoted to disagreeing with Heidegger, um, to strongly objecting to Heidegger's view of being and of the world and of what mattered. Um, but this begins with Blanchot being Heidegger's student when he was in his early, he, Blanchot, was in his early 20s. Um, now, but notice the allusion to Heidegger is that when a tool is damaged, that's when something comes into appearance. For Heidegger, it's the world, the worldhood of the world that comes into appearance that we become aware of. Um, for the reason that Blanchot gives here, which is that the tool is no longer disappearing into its use, which I think is a great phrase, a very good um, exposition, dense and quick exposition of Heidegger, the way a tool disappears into its use. Um, a steering wheel, if you want, your hands on the wheel, disappears into its use. Um, but when it's damaged, it no longer does that. For Heidegger, when it doesn't disappear into its use, it then becomes an example of the whole, of being <coughs> itself. Here is a world of being that we stumble against that suddenly crops out at us and we become aware of the world. For Blanchot, his interest is, uh, is how we become aware, not of the world, but of the image. The image of the tool. The thing that is there not to be used, but only to be seen. Not to be used, because it's not a pipe, but only to be seen in whatever shape and form it has in the very fact of its resembling something, not itself, because if it resembled itself, we wouldn't be seeing it, and not anything else either. That's putting it a little bit paradoxically, and Blanchot loves paradoxes, um, so I'm going to leave that for now, that paradoxical way of putting it, but make the more general point as we now turn to the allegory of the cave. Um, which is that if, as Plato is describing it, and this really is Plato, it's not Socrates, um, if, as Plato is describing it, 
having Socrates describe it. There are at least two worlds. In fact, we could say they're two basic worlds, but they're um, multiplicity of mediations between them. The world of appearance and the world of reality. Um, the question is going to be which one has priority. What kind of priority? Ontological priority, that is which one is closer to what being really is. But it can also be moral priority, which one is the place where moral issues are more important, which one is it morally more important to support. Um, and it could also be epistemological priority, all of these are issues that Socrates or Plato thought he was answering without a doubt, but these were actually the questions that he was opening up. So the basic idea, which the allegory of the cave is going to be an exposition of, but the basic idea of platonic forms, um, familiar phrase to people? Platonic forms? Uh, someone who hasn't spoken yet want to give the um, elevator elevator pitch version of them? How about someone who has spoken? Yeah, Zach, go for it. Uh, it there's supposed to be concepts or entities that exist outside of space and time in which uh, they are the perfect idealized versions of whatever you want to take a chair or a table. Um, all, any table that appears in the world of appearances has some relation to that idealized entity. Yeah, so the um, idea of the idea in Plato is that everyone can look at a table, can say that's a table, and those are chairs, and um, that's a rolling table, and there are tables in Usedan, and there are tables at my house at home. And um, none of these two tables is alike. None of these two tables are alike. Um, they're all different in one way or another. No table is a perfect replica of another table. And even if it were a perfect replica of another table, it wouldn't be in the same place. So there are these, all these things, tables. Um, and we somehow recognize that they're all tables. Um, how is it that we can say that we can be sure, that we can be certain that what we're looking at are tables? And if someone brings in a table we've never seen, we can still, with very great confidence, say, lo, a table. Um, how can that be? And if they bring in a chair, we can say, that's not a table, that's a chair. Um, how can we do that? So, the, yeah? Um, because it serves the same function as everything else. But how do we know what the function is? And because we get the general idea of <coughs> what it would look like so that, so that it would fit the function as opposed to the Okay, so, but a table, if someone says, um, we're out of chairs, go sit on the table, you wouldn't say, wait a second, um, if I'm going to sit on it, it can't be a table because it'll serve the function for me to sit on it. So how can I sit on a table? It's impossible. You would go sit on the table. Um, yeah. Um, question. I, I've always struggled, struggled with this idea. Uh, so is it Plato or Socrates? Plato, really. 
So is it, is it so is he saying that we have some kind of that imperfect table is what we have that we have that in our minds? Yes, he is. Mm. That is the perfect. Yeah, no need to struggle. That's what so he we says. Can't really define it or, or talk about what makes it. So no, but it's like pornography. We know it when we see it. Um, as Potter Stewart famously said about obscenity. Yeah, go on. Can you maybe remind us, because I, I can't remember really what would Wittgenstein say about that? Um, <laughs> I think what he would say is something like what Darwin famously said, which is um, Darwin quotes his brother on platonic forms. This is in a notebook entry. He quotes his brother on platonic forms. He says Erasmus, that was his brother's name, on platonic forms and ideals of pre-existence and then, he, then Darwin writes, yes, but for pre-existence, read monkeys. Um, so what Wittgenstein would probably agree with in Darwin is the idea that it's, for, it's as the life form that we are that we um, are suited to interact with certain things and it's evolution that has um, programmed us, that's given us the um, genetic background and the genetic inheritance that allows us to interact with things as tables, but that's because we're embodied beings. If we didn't have bodies, we wouldn't recognize tables. That's what Wittgenstein would say and what Darwin certainly says. But the, just to give you the elevator um, version of it, um, what Plato says is everyone will recognize a table, everyone will recognize a chair, and so on. It must be that we are born with the <coughs> ideas of tables and chairs. He's actually going to modify this a little bit, but this is the first version. We're born with the idea of tables and chairs. And yet, if you look at a little baby, um, the baby doesn't seem to know what a chair is for, what a table is for. Um, so there's a puzzle. We recognize chairs we've never seen. So somehow we have in our mind the idea of a chair. But there's no way we can give a good explanation of where we would get that idea for something we've never seen before. We can Stuff that we have seen before, we can say, oh, that's a chair. My mother told me that was a chair. And that's a chair because my father told me that was a chair. And mother and father are both parents because my father told me they were both parents or something. Um, but here's something else. And I say, look, it's a chair. So how do I know that? Somehow I had the archetype of a chair in my mind. Where did I get it? I must have been born with it. How did I have to learn it again and be told that particular things were chairs? I didn't actually learn that as new knowledge. I was, to use your word, reminded of that. Before I was born, I lived in a realm of forms where I knew what a chair an abstract chair was, just as geometers know what an abstract triangle is. Not equilateral, not scaling, not isosceles, just a triangle. I also had just a chair in mind. But then I was born, and my birth was but a sleep and a forgetting. Because when you're born, amnesia of the other world afflicts you, but not totally and you can be reminded of what you've forgotten. And I, Socrates, Plato has him say, can prove this by getting people to work out mathematical proofs without my telling them what the answer is. 
the only way they're doing it is they're going into their own memories and reconfirming various mathematical ideas that they were born with but forgot. And therefore, we come from another world, a world of forms. And this world, and this is what's crucial for Plato's contempt for this world, and his even greater contempt for art, this world is an imitation of the world of forms, where we lived before we were born into this lower world. And art is an imitation of this world. So art is an imitation of an imitation. Art is a step away from reality. And this world itself is not reality. This world is only an imitation of the true reality, which is in the platonic realm of forms, to which we hope we will return after we die. Um, okay, let's leave it there, and we will return to this after we take a couple of days off. Thank <laughs> you.